Lewis as well. My heart has been blessed already just to be here for that. I would ask you to turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. And while you're turning there, uh, I was planning, and I'm one of the missionaries that you support, and I want to thank you for your faithful support, financially, especially prayerfully. And I was planning to give more of an update in Sunday school, uh, but something happened. Uh, Matt Barfield came down with appendicitis, and Brother Jose Hordan, who's with me this morning from Bolivia, was supposed to be with Matt in Indianapolis. They were going to a church in Wisconsin. Uh, Matt did have to have surgery to remove his appendix, and so that was canceled. I was able to bring Brother Jose with me. Um, Lord willing, I may, I may just bring a, bring a bit of a, a verbal uh, update uh, for you tonight about what God's been doing at IPM and in my life and ministry in particular. But for now, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, and we'll read here verses 1 and 2. Let a man so account of us as the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage of scripture. I pray, Lord, as we seek to develop it, that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher. And Lord, that you would guide what I say, that your word might be rightly divided. Lord, that it may convict where we need to be convicted. May it encourage where we need to be encouraged. Lord, just work as only you can through your word, and we'll thank you for it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In Sunday school this morning, uh, Brother Jose was talking about what it takes to follow Christ. If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. And he made the statement that this is not an obligation, it's an invitation. And that's true. We are not obligated to follow Jesus. He said, if any man will come after me. There are many who reject that invitation. They don't follow Christ. But once you receive the invitation, then those commands really are not optional anymore. If we're going to follow him... He said, these three things we must do. You see the same kind of thing in this passage. This passage is not really giving us an option. It says, it is required in stewards that a man be found faithful. Now, what kind of stewardship are we talking about here? Well, Paul said, number one, that he's a minister of Christ. That's a, that's a servant of Jesus Christ. That's very similar to what we heard about in, in Sunday school today. These are the people who deny themselves, take up their crosses, and follow Christ. And, of course, the Apostle Paul said, I count myself as among those people. But then he says, stewards of the mysteries of God. And when we think of that term steward, that is one that we use less today. But we do use stewardship. A steward is a type of servant or a type of minister, but a specific kind. A steward does not take care of that which belongs to himself. A steward is a caretaker of that which belongs to his master. So he's a special kind of servant that has something from his master entrusted to him that he may be a caretaker of that thing. And he needs to be faithful 
as that steward. Now specifically in this passage, Paul says, the thing that God has entrusted to me and made me a steward of is the mysteries of God. Now, we use that term mystery in the English language today as well, but a divine mystery or a mystery in Scripture is a little bit different. There are some similarities, but it's a little bit different than the way we might think of a mystery today in the English language or culture. So let's stay in the context, but go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. In 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning with verse 6. So the first thing we're going to do is explain what a divine mystery is. Then we're going to give you some examples of a divine mystery. And then we're going to give an application. But in in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, beginning with verse 6, Paul says, "...how be it we speak wisdom among them that are perfect." Yet not the wisdom of this world, nor of the princes of this world that come to naught. So first of all, Paul says there's a kind of wisdom. He calls it the wisdom of this world. And notice he says it's, that's not the kind of wisdom he's talking about, but he says it's not of the princes of this world that come to naught. You know, the world's wisdom is possessed by political leaders of our world. Again, I've had the privilege of being in many different nations, and I want to tell you something. Politics is messed up and corrupt in all of them. And would anyone deny that it is here? And so when you and I have God's wisdom, and we look at political leaders using the world's wisdom, we stand back and we scratch our heads. And we say, this doesn't make any sense. What are they doing? And it's not because they're not educated. It's not because they're not intelligent. Why is it? Well, let's read on. He says, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which none of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory." Paul here is saying under divine inspiration, the greatest example of political leaders displaying foolishness because they didn't possess God's wisdom was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. They used their authority to commit the most unjust act that has ever been committed. Now you and I know that it was the Father's plan for His Son to be crucified. The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus was put to death in our place, paying the wage of sin in our place, that through Him we might be forgiven and we might be granted God's righteousness. But from a human perspective, political leaders should have never used their authority to put Jesus Christ to death. But they did so because they lacked something, Paul says. They lacked God's wisdom. They possessed the world's wisdom, but they lacked God's wisdom. Now, why did they lack it? Well, if you look at 1 Corinthians 2.7, it doesn't say because God's wisdom was too complicated for them to understand. What does it say? It says it was hidden. 
So the first thing we need to understand about a divine mystery, if we're going to explain a divine mystery, is a divine mystery is something that is hidden from the natural man. It may be complex, it may be simple, but the point is it's not available because it's hidden. So if I had the mysteries of God in my hand this morning, a divine mystery in my hand, would my hand be open or closed? It would be closed. And what's in there, that divine mystery, it may be complex, it may also be very simple, but it's not available. It's hidden. It says that right here. We speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, and it's defined very clearly here, even the hidden wisdom. So the reason that the rulers of this world possess worldly wisdom is because God's wisdom is what? It's hidden from them. Now, let me ask you a question. Have any of you ever played hide and seek? Probably all of you, right? Maybe some of you still do. There's a lot of young people here. I was encouraged to see young people up here ministering and and using their instruments for the Lord. What a blessing. And some of those young people are young enough that they may still be playing hide and seek, and that's okay. It's even okay to play it as an adult. Maybe some of you like to play it with your grandchildren. Now let me ask you a question. When you're playing hide and seek, what two senses, you have five senses, what two do you most commonly use when you're playing hide and seek? Eyes and ears. Exactly. Seeing and hearing. Look at the next verse. 1 Corinthians 2.9. And what too does Paul mention under divine inspiration? As it is written, I hath not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. So Paul has told us in context here that a divine mystery is something that is hidden. And guess what? We're not going to find it the way we find other things. We can't use our natural senses to discover truth about God. Divine mysteries are hidden from the natural man. We can't use our eyes and ears to find them the same way we would seek for things as we do in hide and seek. We can't also use our intellect to find God. Now this helps us understand something. Why are there so many false religions in the world? Because unsaved people, people who don't have God's wisdom through the knowledge of Jesus Christ as their Savior, those unsaved people still want to worship. It's put inside them. But they don't know who to worship. They don't know how to worship because there's only one true God out of all of them on the face of the earth. There's only one. And that one God, you can write it down, is a mystery to every natural human being. And they can grope around all they want with their physical eyes, their physical ears, 
and their own imagination, and guess what? Whatever they may conjure up as the God they want to worship, it's not going to be the true one, ever. In fact, Satan will also get involved in this to make sure that the natural man, because he helps to blind our hearts from the truth of the gospel too, according to the scriptures. He's the God of this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. And so we cannot come to right conclusions about the one true God. We always mess up. Now, right now we're kind of without hope in the passage because it has told us that divine mysteries are hidden from us and we can't do what? We can't discover them no matter how hard we try. Eye hath not seen, nor ear heard, neither has entered into the heart of man. If that's all we had in the passage, I wouldn't be standing up here preaching. I'd go home because there'd be no hope. But look at verse 10. The word but means a contrast. But God hath what? Revealed them unto us by what? Okay, so here's the second element of a divine mystery. If we're going to explain a divine mystery, here's the elements. Number one, a divine mystery is that which is hidden until God reveals it by His Spirit. There's the entire definition. I gave it to you entirely from Scripture. We didn't look it up in a dictionary. We didn't look it up in a theological journal. It's right here in the Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 makes it abundantly clear that a divine mystery is that which is hidden from man, unable to discover it. No matter how hard we try or what we use, We can't uncover that divine mystery until God reveals it to us by His Spirit. Verse 11, For what man knoweth the things of a man, save the spirit of man which is in him? Even so the things of God knoweth no man but the Spirit of God. If you write in your Bible, I would encourage you to underline, The things of God knoweth no man. Left to ourselves, what would we know about God? The one true God of the Bible, if we were left to ourselves, what would we know about Him? Nothing. Nothing. That's exactly right. Nothing. Look at verse 12, and it gets better here. We have received. Remember, we saw the wisdom of the world and the wisdom of God. Now we see two spirits. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. Think about how expensive a good education is. Some people go to these Ivy League colleges and stuff and they spend so much money for a four-year degree that they spend the rest of their lives paying off the debt. There's plenty of those kind of people. In fact, our president tried to erase that debt and it was denied, then he tried to do it again and the Supreme Court just said, no, can't do that. Not the way you're trying to do it. But... Why would we try? Because the expense is so great, right? 
But look at this. What does it cost to get a knowledge of God? Do you see the word freely there? The Spirit of God reveals the things of God to us without cost. Salvation itself is a gift, right? It's the gift of God. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done. We know Ephesians 2, 8, 9, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So the knowledge of God He gives to us freely by His Spirit. And Paul goes on to say, and he wraps this up in verse 14, that the natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. They are foolishness unto him. He can't know them because they are spiritually discerned. Okay, so God is shrouded in mystery to the natural man. He's hidden until He reveals Himself by His Spirit. Now let's look at a specific example of a mystery. If you would go to Ephesians chapter 3... Ephesians chapter 3, you may recognize that the theme of this epistle that Paul wrote to the Ephesians, the theme of that epistle is the church. Now, if we start reading in Ephesians 3.1, the Apostle Paul says, For this cause I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which has given me to you word. Now that's good King James English there, but Paul's saying something was given me to you word. In other words, Paul's possessing something not for his benefit, but for theirs. Not for my benefit, but for yours. Do you see a stewardship idea there? Remember what, how we started this out. Paul said, I'm a minister of Jesus Christ and I'm a steward of what? The mysteries of God. God had committed some things, some mysteries, divine knowledge about Himself to the Apostle Paul. And Paul here is saying, He didn't give that to me just for me to know it. He didn't give that to me just for me to keep it. He gave that to me for your benefit. That's what he's saying here already in Ephesians Chapter 3, God gave it to me for you. And here it is. See if you see the elements of a mystery. How that by revelation He made known unto me what? The mystery. As I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not what? Why was it not made known? Because it was hidden, right? It was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now what? Revealed unto His holy apostles and prophets by the... Do you see all the same elements? They're all there again. These elements of a mystery. Scripture is very consistent about this. This was not made known unto the sons of men in the past because it was hidden as it is now revealed unto His holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And here's the mystery. What is it? Ephesians 3.6 
that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of His promise in Christ by the gospel. Paul says, here's what the mystery is. That the Gentiles should be what? Fellow heirs of the same body, partakers of His promise by the gospel. If we had time, we could go back and, and, and we could develop this from Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul says you were dead in sins, and you were without God, you were without hope in the world, you were strangers from the covenants of Israel. But God did something. And He brought you. He broke down that middle wall of partition between what? Between the Jew and the Gentile. And He made of both of them one new man. That's what he's talking about here again in Ephesians chapter 3. Now, this was a big deal if you were a Jew. Do you remember in the book of Acts when God's going to turn his attention to the Gentiles and Gentiles are going to come to faith in Christ? Did the Jews get excited about that? Well, Yes and no, right? They got excited, but not in the right way. <laughs> Their excitement was one of anger more than anything else, one of rejection. In fact, even Peter, who was an apostle, what did God have to do? For Peter to go to Cornelius, who was a Gentile, God had to bring down a sheet and he had to say, Peter, you see these animals here? I want you to kill them and eat them. And Peter said, not so, Lord. Peter's arguing with God. Nothing unclean's never gone in this body. Peter was pretty proud of being a Jew, wasn't he? Of knowing God's law and obeying God's law. And God had to do this three times to get through to Peter. And then Peter understood that what God really meant went beyond what you're going to eat. The application was, Peter, you're going to take this message of salvation, this message of faith in Jesus Christ for forgiveness of sins, and to enter into a covenant relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Peter, you're now going to take this to Gentiles because I don't want you to see them anymore as unclean. And so when you look at what the passage says, Ephesians 3.6, it doesn't just say that Gentiles would come to Christ. It says they would be fellow heirs and of the same body and partakers of His promise. It's not just that Gentiles will come to Christ, but they'll be second place to the Jews. No. They'll be one. They'll be on the same plane. Fellow heirs brought into... A, a, an equal covenant relationship with God, Jew and Gentile being one. Listen, the reason the Jews got so excited when this happened in the book of Acts and they opposed it is because it was a what? It was a mystery. They didn't have a clue that God was going to do this. 
There's some glimpses in the Old Testament. I was just reading about it in Isaiah, that, that, that God would turn attention to a new and different people from Israel. And so there's some glimpses in the Old Testament. There's also a handful of Gentiles that came to Christ in the Old Testament. You can think of some of them. Ruth is, one, uh, Ruth is a great example. And uh, so is... Um, uh, I'm blanking out here, but uh, the, the woman who hid, Rahab, the woman who, who hid the spies, okay. But there's only a few of them, right? And that's why I should be able to remember them. But they did not know that God was going to make a new entity called the church wherein Jew and Gentile would be one and have the same privileged standing before God. Even the men under divine inspiration, the Old Testament prophets who wrote what God had inspired and they prophesied, they did not prophesy this because they did not know about it because it was still a mystery. And that's what Paul says. It was not made known unto the sons of men as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets. And Paul says then in verse 7 that I was made a a minister of this mystery according to the gift of the grace of of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power unto me who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should do what? Preach. So what did he do with the mystery? What did he do with this knowledge when God gave it to him? He shared it. He preached it. Did he give his life preaching it? Did everybody want to hear what he had to say? No. Did many reject Yes. Was Paul even stoned and left for dead? Was he imprisoned? Was he shipwrecked? We would have to say when we look at this that Paul was a very faithful steward, wasn't he? Because when God said, I'm giving you this mystery, I'm revealing something to you that's been hidden, he didn't give it to Paul so Paul would continue to hide it. Paul made it known. And you couldn't shut him up without killing him. Isn't that amazing? Now notice, Paul says, that I should preach among the Gentiles, what? The unsearchable riches of Christ. Why are the riches of Christ unsearchable? What are the last three words in verse 4? Mystery of Christ. Can we discover a mystery by searching for it? No. No. We just saw that 1 Corinthians 2, right? Do you understand that to the world, Jesus Christ is a mystery? That's why they use His name in blasphemy. It it just rolls out with all the other curse words that are in their minds. He, He doesn't mean anything to them. And even if He does mean something to them, He's just another one of the prophets. He's a great teacher. Maybe He was a great example. Maybe He was one of the best martyrs. But do you remember when... Jesus asked His disciples, Whom say ye that I am? And Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And what did Jesus say? 
Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed this unto thee. You can't know who Jesus Christ really is apart from the work of the Holy Spirit in your life to show you that He is God the Son, one with the Father, God made flesh, the God-man to reconcile men to God. That's all miraculous. That's all mysterious. It's revealed to us by His Spirit. So understand that to the lost world, even Jesus Christ is a mystery, and they can't search Him out according to verse 8. But Paul then goes on about this mystery, and he said to make all men see what is the fellowship of the mystery. So Paul says, here's my ministry. It's to make all men see what I now know. And I'm going to give my life to that. Notice he talks about the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in God. Now let's park on that verse for just a minute. We talked about hide and seek, right? If you're playing hide and seek, how do you win? Okay, yes. It depends on whether you're the one seeking or the one hiding, right? If you're the one seeking, how do you win? You win by finding. But if you're the one hiding, how do you win? If you're the one hiding, you win by not being found. Now look at this verse. It says, This fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the world hath been hid in whom? Okay, so we said that a divine mystery is that which is hidden until God reveals it by His Spirit. But who hides it? God does. Now, wait a minute. Doesn't God want us to know Him, yes or no? Yes. Yes. He wants us to know Him. It's not God's will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, if those things are true about God, why would God hide Himself from us? Well, if He hid Himself and never revealed Himself, then that would be a problem. But here's what I want you to understand. Whatever God does, He ultimately does it for His own what? glory. And so if God, in this game of hide and seek, and I'm not trying to be irreverent here, I'm trying to give you an illustration you can understand. If God's the one hiding, and we could find Him on our own, who would win the game? We would, and who would get the glory? Us. And we would get to heaven and we would say, boy, I'm sure glad I found you, Lord. I'm glad I wasn't as dumb as my neighbor. I wasn't as blind and deaf as my neighbor. At least I had eyes that could see you. I had ears that could hear you. I had, I had enough intellect to find you. Nobody in heaven's going to do that. Not one single person. Because none of us found God on our own. Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. The bottom line is we didn't find God. God found us. And so, God as the one hiding this knowledge from man says, seek all you want. Use all your eyes, use all your ears, use all your minds. But you're never going to find this. You're never going to find me until I reveal myself to you by my Spirit. Because at the end of the day, I'm going to get the glory for you knowing me. It's not going to go to you. It's going to go to me. 
Now, Paul says, this is committed to me, and now I want all men to see. Now, I want you to notice something else in verse 9. He talks about the fellowship of the mystery. Do you know what a church is? One way you could define it. And how do I know he's talking about the church? Well, look at verse 10. To the intent that now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by what? The church, the manifold wisdom of God. So where is it where Jew and Gentile become one? Red and yellow, black and white, they are all precious in His sight. I love the fact that there's more than one race here this morning. I absolutely love that. Because Jesus didn't just die for white people. He didn't just die for black people. He didn't just die for yellow people. He didn't just die for... He died for all of them. All of sin comes short of the glory of God. For God so loved the world that He gave His... And a church... A church should have multiple races in it. The New Testament church did. The church at Antioch had all kinds of different people groups in it. Where Matt Barfield is now, there's about a dozen people groups that meet there and and hear the gospel and hear the scriptures explained to them in their languages. Some of those are very large. One of those people groups has over 200 people in it itself. And I'm not talking about English. That's beautiful. That's wonderful. Because we're one in Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, male nor female, bond nor free. Does the world need to see that racism breaks down in the church? That we're one in Christ. That we love each other because we're in Him. Now, that word fellowship means to hold in common. What do we hold in common? The knowledge of the mystery. Listen, the minute you walk out that door and you're back out in the world, you need to remember that out there, Jesus Christ is a mystery. Out there, the church is a mystery. Out there, God is a mystery. But in here, He's known. And we fellowship with each other because we all know the mystery. Isn't it wonderful? I mean, what could be better? People say, oh, I don't need to come to church. I can, I can worship alone. I, and you can. Man, I love to get out and see the stars and just pray to God because I know who created those stars. And the sunsets and the sunrises and the snow-capped mountains. But that's just me fellowshipping with God. God says, I want you to fellowship with other people who know me. Don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the matter of some is, but so much the more as you see the day approaching. We have the privilege of fellowshipping with each other in the body of Christ. Now there's more uh, to this message. I know I'm running out of time here, but I want to give you, before we close, uh, another example of a mystery. It's in Ephesians chapter 6. Paul says, for me, Ephesians 6, verse 19, and for me, that utterance may be given unto me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known what mystery? The mystery of the gospel. Okay, so we've seen that Jesus is a mystery. We saw that the church was a mystery. Now we see that the gospel is a mystery. 
And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the gospel is defined for us. Paul says this gospel's a mystery. God reveals it in 1 Corinthians 15, beginning in verse 1, Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye have received, and wherein ye stand. So Paul revealed this gospel to them, and they received it. By which also ye are saved, if ye keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless ye have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died. Now let's stop right there. Is the fact that Christ died a mystery? No, it's a historic fact. Now in your mind's eye, I want you to take yourself back to the crucifixion. We'll close with this thought of the crucifixion here. Imagine yourself standing there, and there's a Roman governor up front by the name of Pontius Pilate, and he's kind of pacing back and forth. He's wringing his hands. He's very anxious about something because the crowd is demanding that he put to death what kind of man? An innocent man. This man's been through Roman and Jewish trials, and Paul says... I find no fault in him at all. And even his wife said she was warned of God in a dream. Don't do this to this just man. But the crowd is doing what? They're crying out, crucify him, crucify him. And some of the people yelling the loudest are the religious leaders. To the extent that they would even say, His blood be upon us and upon our children. Away with this man. Put him to death. Hold us accountable. We don't care. Crucify him. Now if you're standing there and you're observing this, you're thinking, why is this happening? Would it be a mystery? Yes, it would be a mystery. I know he's dying, but this way, this man... And this crowd and the religious leaders demanding it wouldn't make sense. Sure enough, he'd be put on that cross. And on the cross, he would cry out, if you could understand his language, he would cry out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And the mystery would get even greater in your mind. Not only is this man rejected and despised by the crowd that day and the religious leaders, but even God has rejected him. God has forsaken him. Why, how could God do that to a just man? Do you see the mystery? And then, the last thing you would have heard him cry out is, It is finished! And you would think, well, what does that mean? Does that just mean his life is over? Or, or did he have some kind of task that he has now completed? What is finished? Now, I want you to go back to the text, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received, how that Christ died. Notice the next three words. Does that uncover the mystery? It does. Why was this crowd so belligerent 
crying out for the crucifixion of this just man. Why were they so brutal in their cries? Because Jesus was not dying for good people. He was dying for our sins. And that very crowd for which He was dying on that very day had to display the fact that they were heinous sinners. They didn't deserve this. But God commends His love toward us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He wasn't dying on that cross for good men. He was dying on that cross for horrible, sinful people. And the crowd revealed it that day, even the best of them. And then when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? When you see those three words, for our sins, you understand it. Because the most foundational thing we understand about sin is that it separates us from God. If Jesus was dying for our sin, He had to be separated. We can't even understand that because this is the mystery of the Trinity. He's one with the Father, and yet on the cross, the Father forsakes the Son because the Son is dying for our sins. We can't even... There's no way we could know this mystery without the Word of God. And when He said it is finished, when you understand that He was dying for our sins, you understand what was finished the sacrifice was finished. Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. All those sacrifices in the Old Testament were never what? They were never finished. There was no once for all sacrifice in the Old Testament. They were repeated over and over and over again. You come to the book of Hebrews and it tells you that the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, was once for all. He finished it. He completed the whole sacrificial system that pointed to Him. He also fulfilled the entire law and all the demands of it. He kept it perfectly. So He lived the life we couldn't live as our substitute. And then He died on the cross paying the penalty of our sin as our substitute. He finished it all. He did it all. And so Jesus didn't just die. He died for our sins. Now Paul says that this gospel that he gave them was one he received. We'll pick up there tonight because I want you to understand something about how Paul received the gospel and what that means. And then secondly, Lord willing, tonight, we are also stewards of the mysteries of God. Have, has God not revealed His mysteries to us? By whom? The Holy Spirit who authored this book through human writers. The human writers had to be good stewards as well. We'll talk more about that tonight. But here's what we're going to do tonight we're going to talk about how we now can be faithful stewards. Because God's not asking us to write new Scripture. We're not going to do what the Apostle Paul did in that way. But we're going to look at what God expects us to do tonight with His mysteries so that we can know that we're faithful stewards. God did not enable us to know His mysteries so we can hide them. 
they were already hidden. They've now been revealed. But to those people out there that don't have the Holy Spirit, it's all still hidden. How's it going to be revealed? Only by those of us who have His Spirit and know the mysteries. But that's just one way for us to be faithful with those mysteries. We'll look at five ways, Lord willing, tonight. So I trust you can come back. We'll pick up here um, 